Welcome everyone to episode 42, whoops, make that 43, of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast that covers neat stuff in philosophy, theology, biblical studies, and social issues. I'm Glenn Peoples, your host. Way back in episode 26, if you can stretch your mind that far back, I started a series called In Search of the Soul. It was a five-part series at the time, which looked at the mind-body question from a philosophical and theological perspective. I looked at the question of whether or not there's a non-material entity called the soul that is metaphysically distinct from and, in principle, separable from the body which could live on after the body died. It's called the mind-body problem. I covered a range of views, starting with a familiar Platonic or Cartesian dualism, which is probably the dominant view in popular Christian culture and has been for centuries. I looked at some reasons for holding that view and I made it pretty clear that I don't find them very persuasive. I looked at emergent dualism or just emergentism and then I looked at a general cluster of views that we could call physicalism, which is where I locate my own position. As I have theological interest in the question, in fact I was initially attracted to the issue primarily because of biblical considerations, I also looked at some of the relevant biblical data and I said that Contrary to the view of many, I think that the biblical teaching favors physicalism rather than dualism. Okay, that's the shortest summary ever. As I finished that series, and a couple of times since then, I've thought to myself that there are bound to be some people who heard that series, perhaps some people with an interest in classical philosophy like Aristotle, or maybe people with an interest in the Catholic scholastic tradition, and who might have been disappointed that I didn't say anything at all about another dominant view on the soul, and really on metaphysics more broadly, namely the view of the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, and the major Western medieval champion of Aristotelian thought, Thomas Aquinas. There just wasn't really an easy place to slot Aristotelianism into the series back then, because it, it doesn't really fit neatly on the continuum from dualism to physicalism. But better late than never, in this episode I'm revisiting the In Search of the Soul series to look at an Aristotelian and Thomistic view of the human person, and I hope that you find it interesting. Let's go. You'll often hear platonic dualism. That is a very strong substance dualism with the idea of an immaterial soul living out its mortal years within a body only to be released into eternity at death referred to as a Greek view, or perhaps even the Greek view. Now, of course, Plato and, and Socrates, who held that view, were in fact Greek. But this view of the soul, or views like it, were also held out, outside of Greeks. Persia and Egypt, for example, are places where this sort of dualism was the norm. So this is not exclusively a Greek view. What's more, and more relevantly for today's episode, that wasn't the only Greek view either. There are two towering figures in ancient Greek philosophy. One of them is Plato, the mouthpiece of Socrates, uh, who taught, unsurprisingly, Platonic dualism. But the other is Plato's pupil, Aristotle, the tutor of Alexander the Great. Aristotle's philosophy, although he was always known as a great Greek philosopher, underwent something of a revival in medieval Europe as more and more of his works were rediscovered from the Eastern world. And it was Aristotle's philosophy, mediated via Thomas Aquinas, that became the staple philosophical diet of Roman Catholic philosophy. Not exclusively, there have been noteworthy exceptions, truly great Catholic thinkers who were not really all that Aristotelian, but it was through medieval scholasticism, typified in Thomism, that is the thought of Thomas Aquinas, that Aristotle was to find his new voice in the Western world. To come to terms with Aristotle's view of the human person, however, 
We can't dive straight into his direct comments about the soul. We've got to start with a more bird's-eye view on Aristotelian metaphysics. Metaphysics, sometimes called first philosophy, is basically the study of existence. What is it that really exists? What is at the foundation of all that we see around us? How does the world, the universe, truly work? What are objects? What are species? What are types of objects? What is time? And so on. These are the questions that metaphysics seeks to address. Now, there have been many, many books written on classical metaphysics. Classical, by the way, just means ancient Greek or Roman in this context. So I can't pretend that I will do the subject justice here. Far from it. But let me briefly sketch some of the major issues in classical metaphysics that will become relevant when looking at Aristotle's philosophy of mind. Maybe the best way of beginning to explain what Aristotle thought about metaphysics is to tell you what he didn't think by briefly outlining some of the metaphysical claims of Plato, uh, the main rival to Aristotelian thought, and then contrasting Aristotle's view with Plato's. I'll do this because those two philosophers represent the two dominant views of the ancient Greek world. You were either Platonic in your outlook, or you were Aristotelian, or else you held to some obscure view. Plato's metaphysical outlook was famously governed by the forms. Around us, we see things that we naturally categorize, dogs, chairs, apples, etc. We put things into boxes and say, that's an X, you know, that belongs to that group. But actually, says Plato, we're not seeing what's really real. And that sounds kind of weird. What he meant is we're not truly seeing what a dog is, what a chair is, what an apple is. At best, we're seeing something like a shadow. Now, Plato very famously used the analogy of a cave in one of his writings. Our condition in this life, while we immortal souls are bound within the confines of this awkward mortal body, that's kind of like a person chained within a cave, forced to look at the wall. Not far behind where they are sitting, there is a walkway where people go to and fro, and behind that still, there is a fire. As objects move on the walkway, the fire casts shadows of those objects on the wall where the prisoners are forced to look, if you can imagine this scene in your mind. Their only access, the prisoners' only access to anything other than the cave wall, are those shadows. Now, based on the objects or people on the walkway, dogs, books, apples, and so on, the prisoners become familiar with associating the name of the object with the shadow that they are seeing. As Plato put it, and I quote, And if they, that is, the prisoners, if they could talk to one another, don't you think they would suppose that the names they used applied to the things they see passing before them? End quote. But, says Plato, we know that actually they'd be wrong. They would see the shadow of a dog and say, that's a dog, but they'd be mistaken, because that's really just the shadow that looks somewhat like a dog. When a prisoner is released, of course, he sees his error. Then he gets to turn his head around to see the actual object. Plato is talking now about their ignorance, so as to allude to the ignorance of those who have not investigated philosophy as he has. But when the prisoner goes out and experiences the world, he sees things that he could never have imagined before. His friends will not hear his tales, and they could never believe what he tells them if he came back to the cave to, to explain this to them, because it's beyond anything that they've experienced, but it is real nonetheless. The condition of those in the cave, and this is where we get to the point, the condition of those in the cave is the condition, Plato says, of those who have never studied the forms. Without any doubt in my view, the forms are Plato's most important contribution to philosophy. This is what a form is for Plato. The world of sensibles is the world of things that we can apprehend with our senses. It's quite literally the world around us. Each sensible is a particular thing. However, sensibles are not just particular things. Many of them have things in common with each other, and we group things into categories or species. Those things are all chairs, those are houses, and so on. According to Plato, those categories are real because there is something that each particular thing in that category is participating in. Put differently, there is something that each chair resembles. Really, no chair in the sensible world 
is the perfect chair. They are all representations like shadows of a chair, some better representations than others. And what does it mean to be a better representation of a chair? Well, in Plato's view, it means to be a better representation of the form of a chair. It means to more closely resemble that form. The form is the ideal, the perfect blueprint. The form is not a particular object. It isn't a particular. It's what's called a universal, kind of like a blueprint existing out there as an object, an exemplar, if you like. It applies to particulars, and it unites them all into one category. For example, the category of being a chair. The form of a chair is not a physical object and does not exist in the material world. It exists in the world of forms or ideals, along with the forms of everything else that has a form. The ideal square, the ideal plow, the ideal that is goodness, that is the form of the good that all things good in the world of particulars resemble, and so on. And that is the shortest introduction to Platonic metaphysics that you're ever likely to hear. Now, Plato's forms are bizarre. They're not just data or information about what it's like to be the ideal example of a certain kind. A form is a free-floating, non-physical, but very real existing thing out there in the world of things that exists. Like objects of thought that would be there even if there was nobody to think about them. Now, some people who have found all this a little bit much to swallow have taken refuge, therefore, in Aristotle. What makes Aristotle a little more attractive to many, uh, maybe a lot more attractive to many in this regard, is that while he still believes in forms, the forms in Aristotelian metaphysics are actually within the material world itself. For Aristotle... A physical object doesn't somehow resemble a non-material form that exists out there in the world of forms as the ideal of its kind. No, every object in the world has a form in itself. Aristotle had no time for the thought of an immaterial object called a form out there. And here is a particular attraction that Aristotle may have had for many modern philosophers. Their being materialists was not a barrier to agreeing with them. Because Aristotle didn't require that they believe in non-material forms out there. So what exactly was a form in Aristotle's view? Maybe the easiest way of explaining this is to explain the way in which forms work together with other things. Imagine some matter, just the physical stuff, you know, grey stuffed, quite undifferentiated from other stuff, not organised into any particular object, just the raw material for making things. It isn't anything. But clearly it's not nothing either. It's that from which anything could, in theory, be made. To use the traditional language when discussing Aristotle, this stuff is what's called prime matter. Now take a completed object, a rubber ball, a tree, or even a human being. In fact, let's think primarily about human beings, because that's really what this episode is about. How do you get from prime matter, this undifferentiated goo, to the finished product of a human being? Well, here's the answer. You add a form. To the ears of a platonic dualist, saying that we add something might sound like the addition of an extra substance. Such dualists might think that this is how the physical life of a human being comes about. You take some matter, you shape it into a body with all the right parts, who add to this an immaterial conscious soul. This is how a strong Platonist might read Genesis 2-7, when God formed man and then breathed into him the breath of life. Now, I think that's a, that's a laughably poor understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, but that's another question. I covered that back in episode 33, uh, the last installment of the In Search of the Soul series, where I looked at the biblical material, so I'm not going to go off on that tangent now. The point here is that that's not the kind of thing that Aristotle thought of when he talked about adding a form to matter or combining a matter with form. Prime matter, that stuff, can in theory be used to make anything, but when you combine it with a form, you have made it into something. The form is the organizing principle. Take a rubber ball. What is its form? Well, it's as simple as it sounds. It is a ball. You could say that form is its ballness or balliness or call it what you will. 
It's the set of attributes that makes it a ball. The form is what differentiates the matter from other things. The prime matter has been morphed into something. In fact, the Greek word for form that Aristotle uses is morphe. And to morph from one thing into another literally is to take another form. Matter, in this everyday sense, that is the stuff that exists in objects like balls, apples, and trees, is secondary matter. It's matter that now has a form. In fact, it's helpful to think of the way the words prime or primary and secondary are being used by comparing them to their use in, say, economics. The primary industries take raw ingredients from the earth, wood, coal, fish, etc. The secondary industries take those raw ingredients and manufacture products with them. So it is with prime and secondary matter. Prime matter is this formless stuff. Secondary matter is stuff as part of an object or a finished product. Now the Greek word for matter is hule, sometimes pronounced hyle with a Y. And the Greek form, sorry, the Greek word for form is morphe. If you put prime matter and a form together, you get a substance, a hylemorph. Balls, dogs, trees, apples, and human beings, therefore, in the Aristotelian language, are substances. More precisely, they're called primary substances. The type of substance that matter composes will depend on the form that it takes. The matter of a tree becomes a tree because it has the form of a tree. But the form is more than just the shape, size, color, and so on, although it is that. But it's deeper than that. It's more than that. To see how, consider Aristotle's comment in his work called The Physics, where he says that the form, and I quote, is the end, that is telos or goal, and since all the rest is for the sake of the end, the form must be the cause in the sense of that for the sake of which. End quote. Now, what Aristotle is getting at here is that the form directs the substance towards its proper end or goal. The form, if we know what it is, tells us what something is for. It's more than just the blueprint. In a sense, it's the operating manual as well. It tells you this is what this is, and this is what it is for. This is its purpose. So, how are things categorized? Well, according to Aristotle, they're categorized according to what they are for, what their proper end is. And this is bound up with their form. That's what their essence is. That word is very important in Catholic philosophy, and here is where it comes from and what it means. Thus, says Aristotle, and I quote, the essence of a house is assigned in such a formula as a shelter against destruction by wind, rain, and heat. The physicist would describe it as stones, bricks, and timbers, end quote. So while a particular house might be made of stone, bricks, and timbers, if it doesn't serve as a good shelter, then it's not a very good house. This is one reason why many, including me, don't think that you can be an Aristotelian philosopher if you're an atheist. Because if you're an atheist, then you don't think that human beings are really for anything. We aren't here to meet some goal that is inherent to our humanity because that goal, thinking in Aristotelian terms, is a proper end that we are here to fulfill. It's certainly not one that we can make up ourselves. Now, as a Christian theist, I can sensibly ask, what is the chief end of man? Which is the first question in the Westminster Catechism. And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So again... The form is the collection of properties, crucially including the purpose, that can be applied to matter to make a finished object, a substance. Now, in saying all this, I am simplifying the language here by not introducing all of the terminology that is used in classical philosophy. The form is also called the substantial form, since it is the form of a certain substance. In the case of human beings, it's the form of the human body. In Plato, 
That's not the case, because the form isn't found in any material substance, heaven forbid, that would be blasphemy pretty much. It's in the world of forms, determining categories of objects by the extent to which those objects resemble the forms. But in Aristotle, forms of things just are substantial forms, and substances belong in a certain category of things, depending on what form that substance has. Now, why, you may ask, have I spent my time thus far talking about metaphysics and categories in an effort to explain what Aristotle's concept of the form is? This is supposed to be an episode on the soul, right? Okay, now I get to the point. (laughs) In Aristotle, the human soul is the form of the human body. In Plato, the soul is a substance temporarily tied to the body, so the soul takes control of the body for a human lifetime. But in Aristotle, the soul is the soul of, or the form of, that body. Now, one thing should be clear right away about Aristotle's view of the soul when we start thinking about what happens when the human body dies. Because the soul is not a substance in addition to the body, but it is the form of that body itself, when the body perishes, so too does the soul. In fact, we don't have to wonder whether or not Aristotle saw the consequences of his view of the soul. He stated it quite clearly. In his classic work on the soul, which is a pretty good place to go to find information about this, he compared the soul, that is, a body's form, to the property of straightness, asking whether it can be divorced from a physical object that is straight. And he said, and I quote, well, I'm quoting an English translation, of course, it cannot be so divorced at all, since it is always found in a body. Because of this absolute inseparability of the soul from the body, Aristotle said, and I quote, we can wholly dismiss as unnecessary the question whether the soul and the body are one. It is as meaningless as to ask whether the wax and the shape given to it by the stamp are one. Now that was a really perfect analogy. The soul is not like the stamp. You could say the stamp is God, giving shape to creatures, but the soul is the form given to wax by the stamp. The soul is the organization of the body. Now, can you separate the form of a stamped wax seal from the wax? I mean, you can certainly make the form go away, namely by melting the wax, but of course, the form of that wax doesn't go away anywhere, it just ceases to exist. Similarly, you can't peel apart, on an Aristotelian view, the soul and the body like you could if dualism were true, because the soul is a feature of the body. As Aristotle says right at this point, it is, and I'm quoting now, it is the essential whatness of a body, end quote. So the soul, or the form, is what determines what object the matter is composing. And once the matter no longer makes up that thing, the soul soul is no longer there. Not because it has gone anywhere, it just is not. For Plato, of course, the departure of the soul just meant two different kinds of stuff becoming unstuck. The material stuff dying and the immaterial stuff living on. But try to imagine what it would be like for Aristotle, unlike Plato, to think of a soul surviving death apart from the body. The problem isn't that I think that idea is false. It's not simply false that the form of a body can survive the destruction of that body. The problem is that it's complete nonsense. Try to think of the corner of a cube existing if the cube no longer exists, and then you'll be thinking about something that makes about as much sense as this. Those features that make matter a body just exist in that body and don't exist if the body doesn't. To talk about those features living on, conscious no less, while the body rots, is like thinking about the grin of the Cheshire cat in Lewis Carroll's story, Alice in Wonderland. At one point, the following unusual series of events unfolds. While Alice was talking to the Cheshire cat, and I quote, it vanished quite slowly, beginning with the end of the tail and ending with the grin, which remained some time after the rest of it had gone. Well, I've often seen a cat without a grin, thought Alice, but a grin without a cat... It's the most curious thing I ever saw in my life. End quote. Now, of course, the whole scene makes no sense at all. The grin of a particular cat clearly can't exist unless that cat does. And yet, 
There's the Cheshire Cat's grin, just floating there, pulled into place by non-existent facial muscles. muscles. <laughs> now, this is fiction. Lewis Carroll's fantasy. So the fact that it's absurd is kind of part of the charm. So we don't complain about that. But in philosophy, when we realize that a theory is actually absurd, then the sensible thing to do is simply abandon it. That's why Aristotle indeed did abandon, or at least he didn't propose, the idea of a soul existing apart from its body. Each time that I've outlined a view of the soul in previous episodes, I've had something to say about whether or not I agree with it. So, do I agree with Aristotle? Well, I'll say that using Aristotelian concepts as our starting point when investigating philosophy of mind is definitely not something I would do, but that's only a criticism of method. My own entrance to philosophy of mind was via theology and biblical studies, and the language of Aristotelian metaphysics is just a foreign tongue in that field. My next exposure to the issue was through modern discussions of philosophy of mind between Christian scholars and theologians, as well as contributions from experts in neuroscience. So again, Aristotelian concepts never even entered the picture. But is he right as far as I can tell? Do I think that human beings are made of matter? Yes, I do. Do I think that we have form in the sense that Aristotle describes? Yes, I suppose. So up to this point, I'm quite happy with hylomorphism or Aristotelianism. Do I think it's appropriate to say that the soul is the form of the body? Well, if you adopt that, that linguistic convention and use it consistently, always making sure that you're clear when you refer to the soul that this is what you mean, then I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I definitely don't think that's how the biblical writers use the terminology of soul. And most theologians don't use it that way. Back in episode 33, when I discussed the biblical material, um, I explained the way that I think the biblical language is used. Uh, most philosophers don't use the language of soul that way either. So it might be helpful not to use it that way, but there's no great sin being committed if you do, provided you explain yourself. But it's definitely not a dualistic view of the soul, not a dualistic view of the person. And even things like lawnmowers have a soul in this broad sense, because they have a form, unless you choose to only call a form a soul in the special case of human beings. So I have no major problem with Aristotle up to this point. So much for Aristotle himself then. Let's now hop in our time machine and skip forward roughly 1600 years from Aristotle into medieval Europe, into the life of the so-called medieval doctor, Thomas Aquinas. In his major work, the Summa Theologica, he included a treatise on man. The Summa, as you might know, is presented as a series of questions which Aquinas then answers. The treatise on man begins at question 75. That question is on whether the soul is a body. Now you might say, wait, whether the soul is a body? What kind of question is that? For a substance dualist, namely a Platonist, that question would be nonsense. A platonic soul is a non-material substance, so asking whether or not the soul is a body, well, that's just crazy. But Aquinas was not a Platonist. In asking whether or not the soul is a body, he was actually addressing the same question that Aristotle had addressed. This is what Aristotle said about the soul, and I quote, Since it is a body of such and such a kind, viz. having life, the body cannot be the soul. The body is the, is the subject or matter, not what is attributed to it. Hence the soul must be a substance in the sense of the form of a natural body having life potentially within it. End quote. Once you reject substance dualism when it comes to understanding the body and soul, then it becomes perfectly appropriate with Aristotle to ask whether or not the soul is actually the body. But they both said no. Aristotle and Aquinas said no, because the soul is the form that organizes the body. It's the organization of the body. Where things start to get a bit hairy is when you realize that Aquinas didn't just think that the soul was the substantial form of the body, as Aristotle did. He also thought that this form, the soul, was subsistent. That means it can exist, he said, without the body. Now, once you realize that, and until now, understandable theory starts to, in my view, go rather haywire. Bill 
Velicella. Velicella? I hope I'm saying that right. Sorry, Bill. Does as good a job as anyone of outlining just why this view of the soul, namely Aquinas' view, starts to become problematic over at his blog, Maverick Philosopher. He says, and I quote, How can a substantial form exist apart from that which it is the form? It's not necess- is it not necessarily tied to that of which it is the form? After all, it is so tied in the case of non-humans like Fido. I assume he means a dog. Fido is a composite, the components of which cannot exist on their own. Why should it be any different in the case of the, of the human soul, if the human soul is indeed the form of the human body? The problem here, in short, is that there is a tension between soul as substantial form and substantial subsistent form. Ontologically, that basically means metaphysically, one wants to protest a form is not the sort of entity that could be subsistent. Necessarily, a form is the form of that which it is the form. But a subsistent form is possibly such as to exist apart from that of which it is the form. These propositions cannot both be true. I find it hard to resist, still quoting Bill now, I find it hard to resist the suspicion that what Aquinas has done is implanted Christian elements into the foreign soil of Aristotelianism. Christianity requires that the soul be capable of independent existence, but no form by its very nature as form is capable of independent existence. Simply to make an exception in the case of the human soul is wholly unmotivated and ad hoc and inconsistent with hylomorphic ontology. Let me add my own footnote to that by saying that when Bill says that Christianity requires that the soul be capable of independent existence, we do no violence, I think, to the argument here. To read this as saying that Aquinas's Roman Catholicism requires that the soul be capable of independent existence. As you no doubt know if you've heard the earlier parts of this series, I don't think Christianity requires any such thing. Catholic philosopher actually one of the external examiners of my PhD dissertation, Edward Fazer doesn't see things as Bill does. He offers these comments in reply to Bill, and I quote, Someone could have good philosophical reasons for thinking that there must be some way to combine hylomorphism and dualism. That, I submit, is precisely the position that Aquinas finds himself in. As an Aristotelian, he is convinced that the human soul is the form of the living human body. It is therefore responsible for all the various human capacities, nutrition, reproduction, growth, sensation, appetite, locomotion, intellect, and volition. In the same way that souls of plants and non-human animals are responsible for their capacities. But Aquinas is also convinced but Aquinas is also convinced that our purely intellectual capacities cannot have a corporeal organ. End quote. But I say that as you read through Aquinas's comments on the soul, you can't help thinking, or at least I can't help thinking, and yes, I'm biased, that actually what he was trying to hold together was his admiration of Aristotle on the one hand and the theology of his church on the other. He was going to put them together whether they were compatible or not. I think that if you look at what Aristotle, what Aquinas actually wrote, you can see this quite clearly happening. When you look at how Aquinas so closely follows Aristotle, but when it comes to what Aquinas wants to say about the soul after death, he reaches for Augustine who was not an Aristotelian at all, but a Neoplatonist. For example, when denying that the soul is a body, Aquinas quotes Augustine, saying that the soul is simple in comparison with the body inasmuch as it does not, does not occupy space by its bulk, end quote. Now that's not Aristotle's view, but Plato's. Plato saw the soul as non-material substance, not taking up space and released from the body at death. For Aristotle, however, the soul was manifest in a physical object. Aquinas, in the same work, considers the question of whether or not the soul is something subsistent, that is, can it exist by itself? The Aristotelian answer is very simple. No, of course not. What a silly question. But again, to claim that it can, Aquinas quotes the Platonic outlook of Augustine. Quote, Who understands that the nature of the soul is that of a substance and not that of a body, will see that those who maintain the corporeal nature of the soul are led astray 
through associating the soul with the soul those things without which they are unable to think of any nature i.e. imaginary pictures or co- of sorry imaginary pictures of corporeal things end quote aquinas concludes and i quote again therefore the nature of the human intellect is not only incorporeal it is also a substance that is something subsistent end quote now of course Aristotle's view, by its very nature, portrays the soul as something associated with a body and only existing in a body, of which it is the form. Aquinas here is simply accepting Aristotle's metaphysics, saying elsewhere, it belongs to the notion of the soul to be the form of a body, end quote, but then tacking on the addendum that, just as the Neoplatonist Augustine said, the soul is a substance apart from the body that survives with its intellectual powers intact. The pattern is quite clear in Aquinas' treatise on the soul. Aquinas' well-known style is to present a hypothesis. It would seem that X is the case. Offering several arguments for that view, and then he turns around and shoots down the hypothesis with reasons of his own. Numerous times here, he effectively sets out an Aristotelian hypothesis and then rejects it, not so much by formulating cogent arguments against them, but by saying in effect, but that's not what Augustine said. Well, granted, but, you know, Augustine was a Platonist. You can't expect him to have said the same thing as Aristotle. And so Aquinas took Aristotle's philosophy and just stuck it together with Catholic doctrine, whether they genuinely fit or not. That's what I think is going on here. Aristotle's hylomorphism just doesn't give you the kind of dualism that Aquinas and other Catholic theologians need. I take it that hylomorphic dualism is really doublespeak. Choose hylomorphism or choose dualism, I say, but you can't have both. Given that this is what I say about Aquinas, it's only appropriate at this point to hear from David Oderberg, one of the foremost proponents of Aquinas' philosophy of mind today. He's written a book called Real Essentialism, where he defends his outlook in some depth. But more succinctly, and I think more relevantly for this discussion, he's written an article called Hylomorphic Dualism, the very term that I think is hopelessly doomed. So let me give you a short exposure to what Oderberg says there on behalf of Hylomorphic Dualism, and then I'll offer a few comments on it before I close. Unfortunately, says Oderberg, whenever dualism is critiqued, it tends to be Cartesian or Platonic dualism that is critiqued, which he says is, and I quote, the idea that the mind is a separate immaterial substance in its own right, with only a contingent relation to the body it inhabits, end quote. And notice how he characterizes the Platonic dualism that he rejects. The mind is a substance, an immaterial one, separate to the material that makes up a body, and it has only a contingent relationship with the body that it inhabits. So it doesn't have to belong to the, like it doesn't have to be a part of, I should say, that body. It can exist on its own without the body. Given that he characterizes Platonic dualism that way, we would suppose that that's not his view. His take on what the soul is, is the view of Aristotle and Aquinas. Intriguingly, he calls it the dualism of Aristotle and the Aristotelians, in spite of the fact that I think that Aristotle's view is best not construed as dualism at all, because that's misleading. Uh, There's only one substance involved. But that aside, he summarizes his position in eight points as follows. And I'm going to use this as the summary of his position. Number one, I'm quoting now, one, All substances, in other words, all self-subsisting entities that are the bearers of properties and attributes but are not themselves properties or attributes of anything, are compounds of matter, highly, and form, morphe. Two, the form is substantial since it actualizes matter and gives the substance its very essence and identity. Three, the human person being a substance is also a compound of matter and substantial form. 4. Since a person is defined as an individual substance of a rational nature, the substantial form of the person is the rational nature of the person. 5. The exercise of rationality, however, is an essentially immaterial operation. 6. Hence, human nature itself is essentially immaterial. 
7. But since it is immaterial, it does not depend for its existence on being united to matter. 8. So a person is capable of existing by means of his rational nature, which is traditionally called the soul, independently of the existence of his body. 9. Hence, human beings are immortal, but their identity and individuality does not require that they be united to a body at some time in their existence. End quote. As a first assessment of this summary, I think that the, the, the big picture starts to go wrong at step four, and it gets progressively worse from there. Step four says that since a person is rational, the form of that person just is the rational nature. But we've already accepted, of course, at step three, that a human person is a compound of matter and form. A person is rational, sure, but a, a human person is more than just a bundle of rationality. After all, a human person, as Oderberg says, in agreement with Aristotle, a substance, and a substance is defined as a compound of matter and form. So if you don't have matter, then you do not have a human person, because a human is a compound of matter and form. So the form of a human person is what makes the matter that makes up the human person rational, yes, but it also gives the human person, person proper function in terms of bodily operation. It gives them height, physical organization, and so on. All of these, not just rationality, all of these are essentially immaterial operations. Think about that. Having a proper function is not a material feature. It's a proposition that's true of something. Being organized the right way is not a material feature. Being organized any given way might be a material feature, but there being a right way for a material substance to be organized, that's not a material fact. But these truths do not imply that there's something that's not material in this equation, or else it would imply, for the theist at least, who believes that the world was intelligently created, that ants, mountains, trees, and rats all have non-material things associated with them. It just means that there exist properties of material objects that are not themselves material. Also, what I've indicated here is that the form of something is not, the form of a human being cannot just be its, uh, a human being's rational capacity or rational nature. It's all these other things as well, things like organization and proper function. Now, what about this property of rationality? What does Oderberg mean when he says that the exercise of rationality is an essentially immaterial operation. Does he mean that it's essentially the operation of something that is immaterial, and hence human nature or form must therefore be some non-material entity? If he does, then he's assuming, as per step three, that human rationality and only only human rationality is the form of human, human being. But that's not the case. And even if it were the case, it still doesn't imply that there is some non-material entity involved, does it? For many material things have properties that are not themselves material, but are still not immaterial things. A human body can have a property like being alive without there being an immaterial thing added, even according to hylomorphism. So why does a human body, having the property of being rational, require anything else? Well, Oderberg insists that this property really does require that there be something that is not material in the case of human persons. Observe, and I quote, The hylomorphic theory is dualistic with respect to the analysis of all material substances without exception, since it holds that they are all composites of primordial matter and substantial form. When it comes to persons, however, the theory has a special account. The soul of Fido, for instance, is wholly material. All of Fido's organic and mental operations are material, inasmuch as they have an analysis in wholly material terms. The soul of a person, on the other hand, is wholly immaterial. The argument for this being that a person has at least some mental operations that are not wholly explicable in material terms. And we can deduce what a thing's nature is from the way it necessarily acts or behaves. End quote. So there's his actual argument. In short, when a dog like Fido acts, in case you didn't realize Fido is a dog, 
Fido doesn't do anything that we can't explain in material terms. So Fido's nature, call it form, call it soul, it doesn't really matter. See what I did there? <laughs> Is material. But when humans act, they do things, namely some of their mental operations, that we can't explain in material terms. Hence their nature, their soul or form, is immaterial. Borrowing from the likes of Aquinas himself, I have four answers to this. It goes without saying, but here I am saying it anyway, that a fully satisfying treatment of these comments would take more time than I'm prepared to spend here. These comments are fairly summary in nature, and they're not meant to take into consideration every possible answer that Oderberg or Fazer or Aquinas, for that matter, might have offered in reply. Decide for yourselves whether or not you think these are good answers, as no doubt you will, but these four things strike me about Oderberg's comments. Firstly, and granted this isn't all that important, nor is it necessarily a problem for hylomorphic dualism, None of this implies that Fido doesn't have an immaterial soul. The fact that Fido's form doesn't need to be non-material in order for Fido to have all the attributes that he has, let's grant that fact. But it would be a formal logical fallacy to say that therefore Fido does not have a form that is a non-material thing. See, this doesn't show us that he doesn't have a non-material form. It just shows us on Oderberg's terms, that we can't prove that Fido has a non-material soul, but maybe he does. Um, but as I said, that's not a problem for the hylomorphic dualist. It's just a problem for those who think they can show humans are unlike animals because humans have immaterial souls. So maybe all we should say um, in this first point to hylomorphic dualists is, well, don't rule out doggy heaven just yet. Secondly, and more importantly, however, when Oderberg spells out just what the argument really is, he reveals that it is an argument from ignorance. He says that the form or nature of human persons must be immaterial since we cannot explain all of their mental faculties in material terms. This line of argument, of course, isn't unique to Oderberg. When I was in the UK, uh, just for example, last year, I had the pleasure of discussing philosophy of mind with Professor John Haldane on the Unbelievable Radio Show, and he made just the same argument. Listen to this. My uh, grounds for rejecting physicalism or materialism as an account of human persons is not the currently sort of favoured one. People focus on these days on consciousness, and they think that consciousness is what it's like to be aware, uh, to have this input of colour and texture and yeah. taste and so on. Qualia, as Qualia, say. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Mm. Which people think just can't, you can't give a physical account of those. Now, for what it's worth, I, I, I'm a bit more open-minded than that. I'm not sure that you can't. But I think there is an aspect of human beings that defies uh, materialist, physicalist uh, explanation, and that is, in fact, intellect, not sense, but intellect, the mind, uh, mind in that sense, or the capacity to engage with reason. And that's a very ancient Greek thought, that really what marks us out uh, in the cosmos, if you like, is our capacity to respond to reason. And I see a connection there between reason as a faculty in us and the logos as the word given to the world. Mm. And so the word that is the word of God, which is the Saviour Christ, is offered uh, is, is, is also sort of an intellectual, has an intellectual principle or aspect that the response to salvation is an intellectual, I mean, there's many things, but among mm. the things it is, is an intellectual understanding that this is, an, this is reality, this is the fundament of reality. And you couldn't have that understanding unless you could resonate in some aspect of yourself to reason in this sense. And it's that capacity to resonate that marks us out, on my account, as being beings possessed of reason. And reason in this sense is not something that physicalism or materialism can explain. So there it is. You'll note that the argument Haldane used there is the same as that of Oderberg, and it's, it's I think, the standard argument used by advocates of Thomism. But of course, as I said early on in this series, many episodes ago now, uh, In Search of the Soul, as I said in that discussion as well, this is a sword that really cuts both ways. Let's Let's just agree that once upon a time, we couldn't explain any of our mental faculties in terms of physical operations just because we didn't know anything at all about brains. 
A bit later, we were able to explain some of our mental faculties in terms of brain functions, and then a little more as time went by, and so on and so on, as we gained progressively more and more knowledge about how the brain works, up to a point where there are still some mental faculties, and these are the ones that Haldane and Oderberg are talking about, that we cannot explain. And for the sake of being generous, let's say that we will never be able to explain them in, in, in terms of physical functions. We will always have that kind of ignorance, let's say. Physicalism, Oderberg, Haldane, and so on, say, can't give us a full explanatory thesis for these mental operations. Let's grant this. And now let's ask, let's, let's turn the tables and ask, can hylomorphic dualism offer an explanatory thesis. I don't mean do they have a name for the for the belief that they think is the true answer, namely hylomorphic dualism. No. I mean, can they actually explain anything? How exactly does this non-material and somehow separable form of the body explain these mental faculties? As far as I know, no dualist of any kind has ever offered such an explanation. It's not that they've failed. I just don't think they've offered such an explanatory account at all. And so, if the lack of, a, of an explanatory thesis counts against a philosophy of mind, then it counts against all philosophies of mind that cannot give this explanatory account. In fact, you could say that it counts against, against hylomorphic dualism more heavily than it counts against physicalism, because we know of at least some mental faculties that, we, that do have existing and apparently adequate physical explanations. Now, the same quite clearly cannot be said for hylomorphic dualism. It has no explanations for how this soul uh, enables us to engage in reason. Now, when I offered this line of reply to Professor Haldane, his answer was that, no, it's not really an appeal to ignorance or mystery, because we know that a physical being can't engage in reason or contemplation for the following reason. Take cats, which are basically matter combined with form, that form being something like catness. Catness being a form is an immaterial thing, and yet we can contemplate catness as well as physical individual cats. But physical entities, he said, and this was his point, this was the nub of his argument, physical entities cannot interact with immaterial entities like forms in this way. We can't contemplate forms if we are purely physical, because forms are not, he said. And therefore, anything that can thus contemplate must be a non-physical entity. Now that, in my view, is unimpressive. If we cannot give an account of how a non-material thing can contemplate ideas like Katniss, and yet we have reason to believe that they can do so, God would be the obvious example of such an entity who is not material, but who can contemplate non-material things then as long as there are grounds for thinking that perhaps humans are physical beings, as well as grounds for believing that we can engage in reason and contemplation, hylomorphic dualism offers no advantage that materialism doesn't offer. What's more, it's problematic to think of catness or of form as an immaterial thing. The most easily understood version of Aristotle's thought here is not that the form is an object or a substance or indeed any entity at all. It's the set of qualities that a substance or an object has. Remember the wax seal? It's the form that is impressed upon that wax. It's not another substance or another object. It's the set of qualities that a substance or object has. In this case, the physical human body. This leads to my third comment on Oderberg's argument. The argument that he and other Thomists like Haldane give is really an argument against hylomorphic accounts of what the soul is. In the Aristotelian hylomorphic view, the soul is the form of a physical body. Take away the body and you've taken away its form. If you should discover a reason to think that actually the soul is immaterial, incapable of living without a body such as the reason proposed here, namely that the soul engages in reasoning that requires that it be immaterial, then you should not carry on believing a hylomorphic account of the soul and just tack on this new discovery on the end. That's like suggesting that Galileo could have kept on being a geocentrist, believing that the earth was at the centre of the universe, after discovering that the sun was, as far as he could tell, at the centre of the universe, by just tacking on this new belief about the sun. It doesn't make any sense to do that. 
That's the point where you change your mind. I say that because if the soul is a non-material thing that can exist by itself with personal identity, then the soul is not the form of the body. Now, I don't believe that the soul is a non-material thing that can exist by itself with personal identity, as you may know by now, but if I did, there's no way I could accept Aristotle's view of the soul. Here is where, and I understand that this will rub some people the wrong way. I don't know whether I should apologize for that because I happen to think it's true. It will rub some people the wrong way, but I think it's correct. Here is where there was a clash of dogma for Aquinas, and he has tried to have it both ways. Now, I make no comment, not here anyway, on the truth of the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the doctrine that the bread and wine of the Eucharist, of communion, actually become the body, soul, and divinity of Jesus to be eaten by Catholics. But as an important historical note, and without going into any detail at all because it would simply take too long, the Catholic Church understood and defended this doctrine using Aristotelian terms to do with the distinction between essence or form and accidents or matter, in no small part because of the work of Thomas Aquinas. So there was an important wedding here of Catholic doctrine with Aristotelian philosophy, a wedding that, Arist that Aristotle, Aquinas, would be very reluctant to break because of the crucial doctrines that this Aristotelian outlook supported. But of course, Catholic theology also included belief in saints in heaven, and by Aquinas' time, it also included the doctrine of purgatory, where you've got persons in heaven or in purgatory who are conscious and can think and reason. No matter what then, Aquinas just had to hold to a view of the soul that allowed for this. Souls had to be able to depart from the body and go to purgatory and heaven and hell, of course. Compatible or not then, all these things simply had to be affirmed at the same time. Fourthly and lastly, nothing that Oderberg says here implies, contrary to his suggestion, that the soul is immortal, that it can live after the body is dead. What if we were to grant, I don't, but what if we were to grant that while the human soul is the form of the body, it needs to be non-material in order to, for the, to get the body to do the things that it does, like be rational? What then? Well, it's still the form of the body. And nothing about it being immaterial means that when the body disappears, the soul does not. As such, while this view, although I don't accept that it works, may be dualistic, it doesn't logically imply life after death. In summary, that's the end of my four points. In summary, I have no major problem with an Aristotelian way of thinking about people. I might develop a problem after I've thought about it some more, but at this stage in my intellectual biography, I have no major problem with an Aristotelian way of thinking about people. However, that way of thinking about people is one that only gives us very broad brush strokes. It tells us that there is a way that humans should be, that there is a thing that we can refer to as human nature and so on, but it doesn't really tell us anything about the relationship between mind and body other than to deny that we have our mental faculties because of a non-material substance added to the body. I've got no problem with that very broad outlook that, that we can call Aristotelianism. But I think Thomism, on the other hand, starts out okay by accepting these Aristotelian ideas, but then it goes astray in trying to force together those ideas as well as doctrines that really require substance dualism after all. I think the best thing for Thomists to do is to decide whether they really want to be Aristotelians or dualists. In making this choice, of course, they will be giving up a Thomistic view of human persons, which I happen to think is the right thing to do. So there it is in a nutshell. The Aristotelian view of the soul and the Thomistic variety which moves off in a more dualistic direction. If you are suspicious of my physicalist outlook and hence of my assessment of Thomism, or if you're just suspicious of me in general, as some people are, help yourself to the resources written in defense of, of the Thomistic view. I will list a few of those in the notes for this episode. Do some reading for homework if you're so inclined, but I think I'm right. That's all I've got for now. Feel free to visit the blog, say hello to my little friend over at www.beretta-online.com. 
take part in the discussion, drop me a line, let me know what you thought of this episode, let me know what you'd like to hear discussed in future episodes, do take care out there folks, until next time, this is your host Glenn Peebles, signing off from another episode of... Shut up to my little friend!